Good morning. Some things are worth suffering for, aren't they? So just have a little think, just before we get going. What is something you might be worth suffering a little bit for? To give you some examples, what about climbing a mountain? You know that your body's going to hurt, but you do it for the sense of achievement and for the view at the top. It makes it worth it. What about when you're a parent and you're standing at the side of a football pitch with an umbrella and you're freezing cold and you're soaking wet, but your child is playing football and you do it because you want to show that you care and that you love them. Uh, A friend of mine said to me recently, slightly strangely, that they've been looking forward to waking up with their legs hurting in the morning. Why do they say that? Well, it's because they've been to the gym the day before and it's a sign of a, a good session. You know, we're all happy to suffer a little bit for some things, aren't we? But the key is that we believe that the end result will be greater than the suffering. That's why we're happy to do it. If we didn't believe that, then most of us avoid suffering as much as we can. Now, Paul, the person who wrote the letter that we're looking at this morning, he knew what it was like to suffer. And he really knew that. You know, he'd been beaten with rods, he'd been stoned, he'd been shipwrecked. He spent a lot of the time very hungry, didn't have proper clothes, he was often very cold. Um, He was often in a lot of danger as well. And all of this was because he was a missionary. He He was serving Jesus and he was sharing the good news of Jesus. And as he's writing this letter, he's actually in prison. And he's in prison because he's been telling people about Jesus. The pain he suffered in his life was far beyond what I expect most of us will ever suffer. But this is what he says. He says, I have something in my sufferings. Now, if we were to fill in the gap, I don't know what word you'd put in there. Maybe I'm miserable in my sufferings. I know I could put that in sometimes. I groan in my sufferings. I endure in my sufferings. But that's not what Paul says. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Paul rejoices in his sufferings. I've realised I haven't put it on the screen, but you can see it in your mind's eye. But it's not because he enjoys pain. It's not that he somehow finds it fun. He does it because he knows that what he is suffering for is far greater than the suffering. The reward is greater than the pain. And as we go through this morning, we're going to see the reward that Paul is focused on. And my hope for you this morning is not only that you'll begin to understand a bit of why Paul was happy to suffer for this, but also that actually you might also be willing to suffer for what Paul's talking about. Paul writes in uh, Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So firstly, I am suffering for you, Paul says. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Paul's in prison because he's been working really hard to bring them the good news of, of Jesus. He's been sent by God to serve them. So he calls himself a minister, a servant. He's been called to, to serve them. 
Now, verse 24 is not the easiest to get your head around. And a lot of people over history have really struggled with this. Um, So it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Nice and simple, isn't it? (laughs) Now, one of the most common problems that people have with this, this verse is that it includes the phrase, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions or what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. And people immediately go, oh, does that mean that the cross wasn't enough, that when Jesus died it wasn't quite enough? Is there still something more we need to do? No, it's not that. The price is paid, alleluia. That's good. One translation puts it a bit differently that I think helps. It says, I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. So Paul's suffering, and Paul is part of the church, which is described as the body of Christ. So as Paul suffers, it's as if Jesus' body is suffering. So it's as if Jesus is suffering with Paul. Now I'm not going to say more than that. That's a bit of a short technical point, and I've put that in just for those of you wondering about it, because it's quite a big verse that people wonder about. If you'd like to think about it more, come and chat to me afterwards and I'll see if I can help. Um, But there's lots of commentaries as well that spend a bit of time dealing with this and explaining it more. So if you're interested, you can do that. But hopefully that gives a bit of an idea. But Paul's rejoicing because he's suffering like Jesus did. And he knows that in his suffering, the good news is going out. But he knows that there is great gain with great pain. Great gain with great pain. In Philippians 1, I don't think many of us would use language like this, Paul talks about the privilege and the honour of suffering like Jesus. When Jesus was on earth, he told his disciples, he said, look, you are going to suffer for my name's sake, but he doesn't say just grit your teeth and, and go with it, you know, bear with it. He says, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Now I think one of the mistakes that we can so easily make is that we can think that if we're doing things right, if we're living a good life, then God will give us an easy life. And I've been challenged by that this week. You know, so much of our life, especially in Crowborough, a place like Crowborough, so much of our life is about comfort, isn't it? Everything's designed for our, our comfort. And most of us will do anything we can to avoid any sort of persecution. That's the sort of suffering it's particularly talking about here. Suffering for Jesus. But Paul rejoiced in it. It was a privilege for him to suffer for Jesus. That's been a a challenge for me. And maybe it's a challenge for you. And maybe for you, that's just a completely alien concept. The idea of suffering being a privilege, you just think, I just don't get that, that at all. Well, keep listening because Paul does explain a bit more. He, he says, well, I'm suffering for you so that you'll know. I've tried to create a bit of a, a couple of sentences this morning that hopefully make it a bit simpler. So I am suffering for you so that you will know. You see, Paul wants them to know something. And it's a bit of a mystery. And I know it's a bit of a mystery because he uses that word three times. Verse 26, verse 27, and Colossians 2, verse 2, he uses the word mystery. 
Now, most of us love a good mystery, and I think part of the, the joy of a mystery, at least from my point of view, is seeing how early, you can, how early on you can get to the bottom of what's going on, how early you can solve the clues, how early you can get the whodunit, and we love to put our kind of Sherlock Holmes cap on and be the detective. I was reading this article yesterday in the, the news, and uh, it says this, Scientists have unravelled a mystery surrounding one of nature's most incredible journeys. It goes on, by fitting eels with satellite tags, researchers have tracked the creatures on the final leg of the route. And then it finishes with this. Their journey will reveal information about eel migration that has never been known before. So there's been this mystery, and scientists have been working hard on it. They've managed to solve it finally using a lot of brain power, and they've got there. This stuff that's never been known before, they've managed to, to work it out. When Paul talks about mystery, he's not talking about something that we have to solve, something that we have to kind of work out, something that we have to use our brain power for. He's talking about something that has to be revealed. So like, imagine if someone's got a black cloth over something, and you can sort of see the shape of it, you can get a bit of an idea maybe, but not really a clue. You, sort of, you have a few guesses, but it's a bit of a stab in the dark. And then what they do is they take away that cloth and suddenly that thing is revealed. That's the picture going on here. That it's something that's been hidden that you can't see that's now been revealed. It's a mystery. Paul says in verse 26 that the mystery he's been talking about has been hidden for ages and generations, centuries and centuries it's been hidden for, but now it's been revealed. We've had the big reveal and it's been revealed to his saints to God's people. The black cloth has been taken away and God is going to show us something that the world has never seen before. And this is something that Paul thinks it's worth suffering for. Something that he thinks it's worth going to prison for. And it's something that is so magnificent that if we get it right, it will blow us away. This is what it is. Christ in you. Paul says, I'm suffering for you so that you will know Christ in you. It says in 1 verse 27, this mystery which is Christ in you. And in 2 verse 2, God's mystery which is Christ. Christians have Jesus, Christ, living in them. Now perhaps you're sitting there unmoved. We might as well have just taken away the cloth and there'd be a dusty old vase there. But so often, the reason we don't grasp even half of how amazing this is is because our vision and our view of Jesus is just so small. So that's the Jesus. When we think of Jesus, we think of the, the moral teacher from 2,000 years ago. Or we think of the baby at Christmas. And that, that's our vision of Jesus. Or, or the one that we pray to when we're in trouble like a genie lamp you know when, when we've got a wish we go to him or maybe he's the Sunday Jesus that on a Sunday we hear about him but Monday to Saturday goes out of mind or maybe he's the hippie Jesus he's all about love and peace and it's all good but it just doesn't engage with you in any way you're just, you're just not that interested in him but last week we had a full description if you were here of Jesus' real identity this is where we see what he's like. Not when he's in disguise, as it were, when he's in human form, but Jesus as he really is. He is the image of the invisible God. 
goes on. For by him, all things were created. All things were created not only by him, but for him. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So all of God lived in Jesus, and now Jesus lives in us. Now, for Christians here this morning, those of you that are Christians, how much of an impact does that have on your Monday morning if you really grasp that? You know, when you're sweeping in the warehouse and you're not feeling particularly noticed, you're not feeling particularly important, you've got Christ living in you. Or what about when you're doing a Bible study and you're feeling a little bit inadequate? You're not alone. God is with you. He's inside you. Or you're a new Christian. You don't really know much at all. You look around at other Christians and you think, I'd love to know what they know. Well, it'd be lovely in some ways. But you still have the same thing that they have, which is God living in you. I was just thinking in children's talk, children, if you swap places with God, with Jesus, and you've got his new coat on, his new T-shirt, you've got God living inside you. What about when we feel guilty? When we don't feel worthy of being a Christian, when we, don't feel we're not good, when we don't feel good enough? Christ is living in us. And if you're not a Christian here this morning and you don't know much about the Bible, this is, this is what the Bible claims. The Bible claims that God isn't just out there, but he is such a personal God that he doesn't just sort of form a relationship with us, but he comes and lives in us. This is the the huge claim that the Bible makes. And maybe you're not interested. Maybe you'd rather be somewhere else this morning or chasing other things. But listen to how Paul describes this, this mystery. He says, How great are the riches of the glory of this mystery. How great are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And then he says this, He's talking about Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know, Christ is the ultimate treasure chest. The ultimate treasure chest. You know, there's nothing on earth that we can want or desire that even can compare with Christ. He is everything we need. And so Paul says, him we proclaim. Paul doesn't need to talk about anything else. They don't need anything else. Christ is everything. I read a a story this week, just a very short excerpt here. Uh, Near the end of his life, a man called John Wesley, some of you will know of him, he commissioned a young man called Thomas Cope to go over to uh, the newly formed United States, or newly independent United States. And as he said his goodbyes on the dock, he said this. As he was going off to tell them about Christianity, he said, offer them Christ. Offer them Christ. That's all they needed. That was plenty enough. John Wesley knew that if they had Christ, they had everything they needed. And you know, we never stop needing Jesus. You know, we we can never get enough of him. This is why we've got Christians here in the 80s and 90s and still keep coming along every week. Because you don't sort of, you know, graduate and move on. We we need Jesus 
all the time. And if we stop proclaiming Jesus here or in Rooted or in Sunday school, if you stop hearing about Jesus, come and tell us. And if you still don't hear about Jesus, go to another church. Go and find somewhere else. There's no point in staying here. It's all about Christ. Now see what it says here in verse 27. I love this, uh, this little bit. In some ways, this is sort of the real central bit of this passage. It says, Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. Christ in us, the hope of glory. You see, for Christians, because we've got Jesus living in us, that's how we know that we will be glorified. Because Jesus was glorified. So we too will rise from the dead as Jesus rose from the dead. We too will be given new bodies and a new creation because that's what Jesus got. We too will be fixed. Fixed so that we are once again the image of God. Tony talked at the beginning about the fact that at the beginning we were the image of God. Adam was made in the image of God, but that was so broken. But we're fixed. Once again, we reflect God's glory perfectly. And we too will live with Christ in his glorious new kingdom. That's not a bad hope, is it? It's not a bad certainty. Sin will be history. Death will be history. Greed, pride, fear, anger, hurt will be history. You know, as Christians, we can be certain of glory, not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, but because we have Christ in us. And because we're united to him, what happens to him has to happen to us. So we will be glorified with him. It's why I chose in Christ alone that we sang just now. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, brought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here, in the power of Christ, I'll stand. So I am suffering for you, Paul says, so that you will know Christ in you. But there's a bit more. Paul says, I am struggling for you. He said he's suffering for them. Now he says he's struggling for them, he's working for them. He says this too, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. He hasn't seen the Colossians because he's in prison and he can't see them. But he's having this struggle for them. He wants them to know Jesus. And then in verse 29 he says, I toil for you. Now I haven't used the word toil for a very long time. But it's this this basic idea of um, working to exhaustion. And it comes from the uh, athletics world, really. So, you know, in the, in the Olympics, uh, if someone's trying to win, say it's a long race, and uh, they're giving every single bit of energy they've got, and you can see it on their face, can't you? If they're really going for it, you can see it on their face. And this is what Paul's doing. He's giving every bit of energy 
that he's got for the Colossians because he wants them to know Jesus. But he's not alone. He's got added power. This is what he says. I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. If you know anything of the life of Paul, you would have seen some of the amazing things that God's been doing through Paul. And one of the things is just sustaining him, just keeping him going. I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You know, Paul's not lazy. He does everything he can. He's giving every ounce of energy he's got. But he also knows that it's only through God's power that he can really do anything. And I wonder if that's something that we can learn from. It's certainly something that I can learn from. You know, this doesn't make him lazy, Paul. He gives everything for God. But he knows that the real power comes from God who is working within him. That's, that's how he can succeed. And what is Paul struggling for specifically? So I am struggling for you so that everyone may be mature in Christ. This is why Paul's working really hard for them. He wants them to be mature. He's desperate to bring them to maturity. So this is what he says in verse 1, verse 28. Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, physical maturity is being grown up, isn't it? Your body's developed, you've grown. Uh, Psychological maturity is where maybe you can take on some responsibilities. You don't think like a child anymore. You're capable of dealing with a bit more. But Paul wants them to be spiritually mature so that they can stand on their own two feet and that they can understand everything they have in Christ. That's what he wants for them. Paul didn't just want to see lots of new Christians, exciting though that is. He wanted mature Christians. And we know that, don't we? Like, if there's a baby, it's quite exciting, especially if you're related to it. But if it stayed a baby, you'd be worried. It's not what you want. You want them to grow. You want them to develop. You want them to mature. And that's what Paul wants. He wants them to grow spiritually. He wants them to grow in their knowledge and love of Jesus. And this is for everyone. Everyone. And how do I know this? Because it says it three times in verse 28. Everyone, everyone, everyone. That was, that was Paul's goal, that everyone in the church should be mature spiritually. And you know, that's the goal of John and myself as we speak to you week by week. That we want everyone here, we long for everyone here to be spiritually mature. Everyone. Not just the PhD students, not just the CEOs, not just the super-religious, everyone. But how do we do that? Well, we learn from what Paul says, verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So we show you Jesus. And we warn you and we teach you with the wisdom that he gives us. You know, we all need to be taught, every single one of us. And we need to keep being taught. And at times especially, 
we need to be warned. We need to be warned where we're going wrong and the danger it leads to. Sometimes it uses the word admonishing here instead of warning. And admonishing literally means to straighten out thinking, where it's gone a bit crooked. Now, some of you may well have seen a video. Uh, It's a video of a guy called Boris Orovec. He's a professional athlete, and he basically decided to do something which I'd never try, which is swimming under ice. So he uh, goes in one ice hole, and he swims in the sea towards the next ice hole. Some of you may have seen it. But what happens is that very quickly, after leaving the first ice hole, he starts going off course. And you can sense the panic in him as he suddenly realises he doesn't know where he is. And there's a couple of people on top who try and smash the ice to rescue him, uh, but the ice is just too thick. And you see him sort of flailing around under the ice. And thankfully, he he manages to get back to a bit of string and pull himself back to the hole that he just went in in the first place. But so quickly he went off course, only a few feet in and he, he starts drifting off. You know, we're like, so like that in our lives. So quickly we start drifting away from, from God's ways and from how God wants us to live. We need warnings and corrections. We need someone to put us back, to straighten our thinking again. And if an older Christian or a church leader tries to warn you about something... I want to encourage you to listen to them. We don't always like that, do we? But we need it. And they won't do it because it's enjoyable. They'll do it, hopefully, rightly, so that you don't miss out on Christ. So that you don't get caught up in other things and miss out on the best thing, Christ. Like Paul, we long for everyone here to be mature in Christ. So that, Paul says, no one may delude you. No one may delude you. No one likes being deluded, do they? To delude someone means to make someone believe something that is not true. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, we're going to come on to this a bit in the the sort of coming weeks, but Paul knows that there's all sorts of clever arguments, fine-sounding theories, um, all this spiritual stuff going on at Colossae. We don't know exactly what was going on, but it seems there were some sort of spiritual ideas going about, and they were very dangerous. And Paul doesn't want them to be deluded by these things. He doesn't want them to be deceived. He wants them to know and enjoy the truth. He wants them to be encouraged and strengthened in Christ. And he is thankful to hear about the Colossians. He says, I'm thankful for your good order and your firmness in faith. So he looks at the church and goes, I'm thankful for what I see. But he's nervous because there's these fine-sounding arguments that can so easily persuade people. And he doesn't want them to be deluded. He wants them to know and to hold on to Christ. You know, as I look out of this church and maybe as you look out, what I see is, is firmness of faith in so many ways. And I'm thankful for that. And I praise God for that. But our prayer, John and mine, and the rest of us as leaders, and those of you that lead anything, hopefully your prayer is the same as Paul's, that we know more and more of Christ. Because you know, we live in a world, don't we? There are so many plausible arguments 
so many clever sounding theories that, that take us away from Christ. And Paul says, I want you to be mature in Christ. I want you to understand just how special Christ is so that you don't get taken away by any of those things. So that you can trust that God is good and that he will take us to glory. We need to see that Christ is enough. He is all we need. As Paul says, we all need to know how great are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, it's been a lot to take in, but I hope it's helped you this morning get a bit of an idea of why Paul was so willing to suffer for these things. We're going to pray. No, we're going to sing. Then we're going to pray. We're going to sing a song. Uh, I think you'll work out why I've chosen it. Uh, It's in the, the chorus that we'll see that. But let's sing and reflect on this, and then I'll pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can praise Jesus. Lord, we thank you that the mystery has now been revealed to us of Jesus Christ. Lord, and that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. Lord, I pray that for those of us who are Christians, we may go away knowing the truth of this, that it may impact every second of our life. And Lord, for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would work in their hearts. Lord, that they may know their need of you. Lord, that you may live in them. And Lord, that one day you may restore them, that they too may be the image of you and that they may enjoy glory with you. Lord, do be with us in a special way, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.